Hey everyone, we've got a great show today. We're talking about conferences and speaking at conferences with Carl Hughes. Uh, Carl has created the CFP Land uh, website, newsletter, and Twitter account where you can find out about upcoming conferences and deadlines for proposals. So we think you're really going to enjoy the show. Uh, if you want to support us, you can go to techjr.dev and click subscribe uh, to sign up for our newsletter. And you can check out our Patreon and buy some swag. Uh, thanks to our most recent patrons, uh, Xandra Capota and Will Johnson. You guys rock, and we appreciate you. Uh, also, you can tweet us at TechGR Podcast, leave a review on iTunes, tell your friends, and do all the things to help us out. We appreciate all that stuff. All right, on with the show. All right, welcome to Tech Junior. My name is Lee Warwick Jr. I'm a full-stack JavaScript developer. I have with me, as always, Eddie. Hey, it's Eddie, uh, front-end developer. And today we've got a special guest. We've got Carl Hughes. So, Carl, if you could introduce yourself. Yeah. Hey, guys. Good to be here. Uh, my name's Carl. I am currently the chief technology officer at a startup in Chicago called The Grade Network. Uh, I'm a self-taught software engineer from kind of a non-traditional background. Uh, I've been doing this now for about eight years. Uh, mostly worked with early stage startups, so that's a pretty unique experience in itself. And then the last couple of years, I've gotten really into speaking and uh, conferences, tech conferences specifically, as well as uh, I help run a meetup group here in Chicago. So Pretty familiar with that whole scene of things as well, um, and looking forward to chatting about all things uh, tech with you guys. Fantastic. Cool. Uh, so first question I have to ask after that intro is, what career did you change from into technology? Yeah, so uh, I guess I was technically in technology. Um, when I went to college, I studied mechanical engineering. And as you can imagine, mechanical engineering is like gears and uh, airflow and stuff like that. It's very different from uh, most software engineering jobs. Uh, we get a little bit of programming kind of like thrown at us is, is like kind of a, it, it's like almost a joke how little it is. So, you know, I sort of knew what programming was from a, a high level, um, but I had no idea how software was made for the web. Um, and I worked a couple of internships with really big companies when uh, I was in college. So I worked at GE Appliances and Siemens Healthcare, and I got to see what those sort of huge mega corporations were like from the inside. And I just realized it was totally not for me. It's just wrong for my personality type. And um, I wanted to try going sort of the full opposite direction. So I kind of started my own little business in college. And then that sort of spun into me getting hired by a startup to uh, do all sorts of random stuff for them, including some software engineering. And then I slowly sort of specialized a bit more as I, I went further along and uh, kind of started off just, you know, being a contributor, then started managing a couple offshore developers of, not, of the, the next startup I went to, and then um, uh, sort of hired an in-house team and helped them build their first actual engineering team. And uh, then have kind of been in a mix of hybrid roles like management slash uh, hands-on development for the last five or six years. Cool, cool. So yeah, it sounds cool. like a lot of startup work. Yeah. Very, uh, like on the ground, getting everything done kind of work. Yeah. Um, what kind of technology are you working with primarily? Yeah, so um, the one I'm with now, our backend stuff is in PHP. We use a framework called Laravel that's pretty popular in the PHP world. And then uh, on the front end, we use Angular. Um, 
we're on whatever six or seven, maybe eight now. And I, and I can never they do a new one every like twice a year now. So I'm like, yeah, every six months. Yeah. So it's way too much. I mean, like when you're a, we're a tiny team, there's three of us engineering and there's like 10 people in the company right now. So obviously we're not like, we don't have a ton of time to clean up our, you know, upgrade every version all the time, but we try to stay on top of it. So it's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Cool. Uh, yeah, we, uh, I don't know, Eddie, have you gotten into Laravel at all? I know you, you do Angular, but... No, no, I haven't had the time. <laughs> yeah, There's so many things well, to learn. Right. Just like <laughs> it's very it's very Rails-inspired. So the guy who created it, um, Taylor Otwell, he sort of saw what Rails was doing uh, in the Ruby world and just making it super accessible and easy to start a web app and kind of took a lot of that same idea and moved it into Laravel. And so it's not only like quick to start up a Laravel project and build a real web application. It comes with a lot of things out of the box, but it also is like done in sort of modern best practices. PHP is a language that gets a lot of, uh, it gets kind of like, um, I don't know. A lot of heat. Uh, yeah, it gets some heat. I was trying to think of a nice way to yeah. say that. I mean, I've done PHP a long time and I like it and I think it's got some good sides, but like every language, it's also got some crufty bad sides. And so, um, you can do some gross things in it, but, my opinion is you can write bad software and good software in almost any language, so I don't worry too much about that. Yeah, I know I'm I'm waiting personally for uh, JavaScript and Node to get whatever its Rails or its Laravel is yeah. going to be. To you should look into land. look into Nest uh, JS, or it's like their uh, it's a Node TypeScript framework for the back end, and right now it's the closest I've seen that comes to that kind of. Uh, Rails Laravel feeling where you just like start up and all of a sudden you've got things that work and it's like secure and it's sort of all taken care of. Right now, everybody, it seems like with Node frameworks, they're all just like, oh, you roll your own authentication into it. And it's like, God, why is this what we're doing? It's, you know, yeah. it's 2020. No. Seems, yeah. It's yeah. Funny, implementing it's the same boring, difficult stuff over and over Exactly. Again. Yeah. yeah. That's the second time this week that's come up. So I may actually look it up. It's, um, I've heard it called like uh, angular on the back end or in node yeah, or whatever it's yeah. more right it's more similar in um the way they do dependency injection and some other things okay. to to angular uh, so if you're familiar with angular you'll catch on to it pretty quickly if you're not you can kind of just you can kind of breeze past that stuff at the beginning and just get started because again it kind of just gets you going quickly and to me that that's one of the well I don't know, this is kind of a whole nother tangent, but like if you're working in a startup, you really don't want to spend a ton of time building your own custom architecture because you just got to get on the ground and running. And uh, when you have a framework that gives you a lot of things, sort of opinions on its own, it's actually really helpful to get started that way. That makes sense. Yeah, that was that was my question was, uh, obviously you get to pick the tech stack if you're the CTO. So yeah, um, why go with Angular and why go with uh, yeah. Laravel? So the, honestly, the number one thing is it was what I did at the startup that I was at before. And when it's what I'm most familiar with and I'm the sort of developer number one, I'm going to pick that because it's what I can move the fastest on. I knew though that also I could hire for both of those roles because I had hired a number of people in those roles before. And um, I had a, sort of like been in those um, groups of people. I go to those meetup groups. I am in those uh, conversations online. And so I knew enough people in my network to kind of build a team off of that. And then um, I think they're both also uh, another thing I always kind of recommend to startups is like pick a relatively stable uh, tech stack that is not going to be super hard to keep up with. Angular has actually been a little harder than I would like, but at the same time, it's also backed by some pretty big players. And so it's going to be around. It's not going to, you know, 
be a fly by night framework that, that goes away in six months. Cool. Cool. Uh, yeah, I've worked with Angular just a little bit. I think it's on version nine now and there's supposed yeah. to be like, uh, some, some pretty big updates with that version, but I haven't really followed it too closely. Yeah. I don't know if Eddie, have you read anything about version nine? As far as nine goes, I think they've moved to the Ivy. Yeah. The Ivy compiler. For, oh, compiler. Yeah. So whatever it's, it's called. Yeah. Lighter now. Yeah. Um, but that's all I know. I haven't really <laughs> done a whole bunch of research. On yeah. It. Yeah. We, um, we jumped into angular as new developers and it was yeah. a, a nightmare because oh, it was a lot. like yeah. going from JavaScript yeah. into TypeScript and RxJS and all the stuff. And <laughs> yeah. the docs, no. like people say they're great, but I personally, I didn't find them that helpful. And, no. uh, it was, pretty, it was just kind of rough jumping it into is. that straight off the bat. And every time the last two developers I've hired, it's a, it's a pretty steep learning curve to, to get up to speed with all those, like you said, you, all those new technologies that come into play for angular. And yeah. I think it, when you're more senior, you realize that those things are actually really useful altogether. Cause you've seen software done like JavaScript done without it. And you realize that, you know, there's need for all these different um, pieces to be put together. But when you're new, it's like, oh man, like, where, where do I start? Like, how do I climb this mountain? It's, it's intimidating. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, coming from like React where, you know, you follow a tutorial or whatever, and they're like, oh, just do an API call right here in the component. You're like, okay, great. And then you jump into <laughs> Angular and they're like, oh, well, no, you have to go build a service for that. Yeah. And then you're going, why? I just want to do the API yeah. call right here, like Axios.get, yeah. you know, or whatever. Yeah. And then you have and, to do uh, build an observable chain. And yeah, you have I was going to say it was an observable. Like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, I got to subscribe to this thing? What the heck? Yeah. Right. But uh, now, having kind of like been around the block a little bit, um, I find myself building services into like view apps or into like my node server or whatever. Yeah. So like I'm building these layers of abstraction anyway. So yeah. I kind of feel like if I went back into Angular, it would make a lot more sense now. Yeah. This is one that you actually bring up something that I always find really interesting. After someone has worked at one or two tech jobs, they start to, they pull the experience they have from the frameworks that they do use and use them in the future jobs. And you'll find that more and more throughout your career. I find that for sure. It's like, I'll find these ideas in Laravel that I like, and maybe I'll use something like it in Angular or vice versa. So picking those up, those like patterns up and being able to reuse them, that's actually a really powerful skill. It's, it's helpful. Even if you don't fully get it, it's like, it's still like you kind of know it's there, so you can kind of use it in the future. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I think you know, we talked to Matt Stauffer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And he, um, he talked about a lot of people learn uh, design patterns from uh, Laravel. Yeah. And... Well a lot of PHP developers are, are, are either self-taught or non-traditional backgrounds because it's such a, like JavaScript, it's such an easy language to get into. Um, I think that attracts a lot of people who are sort of uh, hobbyists that turn pro. And so it's kind of fun because uh, they're all kind of, we're all kind of out there learning these computer science terms together and trying to figure them out. And a framework like Laravel that uses some of those things actually does help a lot. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we, we actually didn't bring you on to talk about <laughs> Angular and, and Laravel. Uh, but I mean, this, that's great because there we do have some fans that are like, hey, how come you guys don't talk about Angular, you know? But um, <laughs> we want to talk to you about CFP land. So um, yeah, you've been doing uh, the tech thing for a number of years now. What got you into speaking and what kind of inspired you to, to take on CFP land and, and moreover, what is CFP land? Yeah, so I... I uh, 
and this is not uncommon, but I think a lot of people, uh, when you've been programming long enough, it's like you have to keep challenging yourself to do new and different things that are outside of your your comfort zone if you want to keep getting better overall as an engineer. And one of those things that I was really interested in getting better at a couple of years ago was public speaking. And I had started to have the opportunity in like more meetings to be kind of the manager giving presentations and things like that. Uh, but I had never... Um, and I had, I had done some public speaking in other contexts, but I had never done it in the context of like a tech talk. And it was actually pretty intimidating because I've never considered myself the strongest technologist. I'm sort of this weird hybrid of like, I know enough business to be okay to talk to business people. And I know enough engineering to talk to engineers, but I feel like I'm always like sort of this man in the middle and, um, going to a conference, it's highly technical people. And these people who've been doing this for 20, 30 years sometimes and talking in front of them about something I know that maybe they don't, that's like super scary. And it would never diminish that. And I think it's the reason a lot of people hold off getting into speaking. But after doing it, um, I realized it, it's not actually the case. And I mean, we can get into this more, but um, anyway, so it was like kind of a personal challenge. It was also kind of like a good way to build um, our sort of brand as a startup. When you're small and you're trying to hire your first couple hires, it is super hard because nobody knows you and nobody, it's so hard to stand out when we have a competitive hiring environment and you're this tiny startup with just a couple people and you're trying to convince two or three engineers to like put their faith in, in you. It's, it's really hard. And so the more you can do like going to meetups and speaking at conferences and blogging and building that awareness of what your company does and what you do and your, the way you build software, it actually, it ends up paying off. So the last two hires I've made, they both saw me speak at meetups or local events before they came on board. And that's how I met the, the last two candidates. So it's actually a, also turned out to be a really good way to hire people. Um, and so a little bit of personal challenge, a little bit of, of you know, wanting to get our company and brand out there a little bit. And I did that in 2017. And as I was doing it, I was building this huge list of CFPs. And we'll get into what that is in a second, I guess. But um, basically, it's like every conference wants to, they, when they want speakers, they they open up a call for proposals. And you can go submit your, your uh, abstract, is what they call it. And you can possibly get selected to speak at the conference. And so I'd started building up this big spreadsheet. And then people started asking me if I could share it with them. So I started sharing the spreadsheet with them because I was kind of tracking all these CFPs that I was interested in. Uh, they started adding some of theirs to it. And then I was like, well, let's try making this into like an email newsletter or something like that because it's a little easier to manage than just trying to manage a big spreadsheet. And it also is more useful because every week I would just email out only the CFPs that are closing in the next like three day, three weeks or so. And uh, so I started up CFP land as just like a landing page for that newsletter. Uh, and then over the last year and a half, it's kind of gone from just me and a maybe 50, 60 speakers that I kind of was connected to, to like about 2000 subscribers now. And, um, they get the weekly wow. email and then, um, uh, yeah, now it's, it's sort of like, I also have a, a web app that you can, uh, purchase on, onto it as well, where you can track which CFPs you submitted to and things like that. But, uh, oh, cool. the, yeah, so, but all the conferences are still like, there's about, like I said, it's like a three week window of like, here's all of them in your inbox every week. And so you can just sign up for that if you want to get started. No money required. It's totally free and um, a great way to just kind of like get started and seeing what's out there in the speaking world. And um, I also go out and like gather whether or not the conference covers your travel costs and hotel costs. So this is a whole nother topic too, but um, basically some conferences don't cover any of your costs of travel when you speak there, some do. And so if you're a new speaker and your company's not going to reimburse you, it's really good to know that. So that's another thing that um, 
I was tracking for myself and now I'm kind of tracking for 2000 other people, which is cool. Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. Um, <laughs> you, you covered a lot there. <laughs> I did. Sorry. <laughs> so, so to backtrack a little bit, CFP land is a newsletter and a website where you can sign up for free to find out about, uh, what CFPs are currently open or closing soon. Yeah. Uh, or both. And also, you know, who covers travel costs or sponsors or, or whatnot. Yep. And also, um, going back to like why you got into this thing, uh, getting into speaking and all that. Um, yeah, I've kind of noticed that myself. Like I originally did it because, uh, I just, you know, wanted to share what I had learned with other learners out there. And then it's, it kind of morphed into like, well, you know, it's kind of good for personal brand building. Like I want people to listen to the podcast but then also as I got um, into the workforce, my company is like, hey, Lee, are you going out and speaking? Like, here, take these stickers with you, like, you know, share our brand a little bit. And, you know, so th- I think that there is a lot of value in that. And maybe people don't think about it. They think about it mostly as like a, a personal thing, but it's also uh, really good for your company and kind of puts a good um, a good face forward for people out there to recognize like, hey, your company is not only you know, technologists, but, uh, kind of building this culture of technologists that are into community and into speaking and, and learning and, and that sort of thing as well. Yeah. I was going to say, you just hit the the important point, which is if you're at a conference and you see a company has several people speaking or a couple of people speaking, even that company probably values education and continuing education of their developers, because that's why they're sending people to go spread the word. And so I think it says something about the company's culture. And it's something that um, I definitely try to to do um, at the grade network at my main job, just like putting in time for people to learn things. So every week in our weekly sort of like re- retrospectives in engineering, we're talking about what did we learn last week and what do we want to learn next week? So that's a like built in part of our week. And you have to set aside time to do that learning during the work week. And um, so anyway, companies that are out at conferences are probably also the same companies that care that you are learning and continuing to develop in your career. So it's definitely something good to watch out for. Yeah, definitely. That's cool. Um, Going back to your, whenever you were talking about like, uh, I don't know if I should speak or uh, I don't know if I have no experience. You know, there's, like you said, there's a lot of people at these conferences that are like top tier <laughs> professional engineers. And I know personally, whenever I look at submitting talks, I'm like, there's always that voice in the back of my head. That's like, do these people really care what I have to say? And do I have <laughs> yeah. enough experience to convey something <laughs> interesting or new to these people? And it, it's kind of like this constant nagging. Um, so how do you feel about, um, people that aren't 20 year, you know, engineers or you know, maybe <laughs> early in their careers, uh, should they be applying to conferences to speak or do you think that they have something to say? Yeah, I think it totally depends here. I mean, on one side, mo- uh, don't feel obligated to do this as a, you know, new software engineer, you have so much to learn. You have so much to like to get under your belt before you'll feel like you're on your own two feet that maybe this, you know, you don't want to put the extra pressure on yourself to also learn to go speak. But I'll sort of say on the flip side, if you maybe came from a background where you were doing public speaking and that part is pretty comfortable to you, then one of the most, um, some of the best talks come from people who are new to a topic because they go through the hard parts. They go through the things that weren't obvious from the documentation and they hopefully just remember what it was like going through that and they write it down and they put it into their talk. Um, 
so that that's sort of the alternate viewpoint to look at this is like junior people are sometimes the best people to give um, these kind of conference talks because they're they're the ones who just went through it and you have to remember that when you get up on stage yes there are people who've been there 20 years in software engineering but it's unlikely that they've done exactly what you're talking about because you're probably probably talking about something that's very specific or kind of a niche thing that you did that they probably haven't and that's probably why they're sitting in on your talk is because they don't know it and they want to learn it so keep that in mind it's like don't let it intimidate you everybody in our field's knowledge is spiky and what i mean is like i know about laravel really well but i don't know a ton about um and I'm a beginner in Django. So I actually worked on it like a Django project with a friend of mine who's a recent bootcamp graduate because he knew Python and Django pretty well. And I knew sort of other frameworks really well. So I kind of came in and he would, we'd pair together and I'd learn from him and he'd learn from me. And um, it was super helpful to like have someone, uh, it, kind of these different levels of knowledge, the spiky knowledge just work together. And so that, that's what happens when you get on stage. You have some spikes where you know a lot and other people in the audience probably don't know a lot. And that's totally okay. Um, and then the other thing is that some people have really interesting stories to tell that are not just purely tech related. So for example, um, this last year I interviewed about 35 conference speakers because I wanted to write a big guide on what you know their experience was getting into uh, speaking. And so I published that on CFP land. And one of the people I interviewed, um, her name is Taylor Alexis, and she's um, she's pretty active on Twitter, so you may have run across her. Uh, she, yeah, made I follow big, her. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, she she made a big transition from like working in fast food to working in tech in twenty eighteen. I think, yeah, super awesome story. I mean, like it's one of those things where I'm like, damn, I could not have done that. Like, you know, this is she. This girl worked hard, and she figured out a lot of things on her own. It's amazing. Um, and she got invited to tell that story at a big JavaScript conference because she was tweeting about it, and people saw her video about it, and it's like. That is the kind of story. I mean, that's inspiring. It doesn't matter that that's not like a super tech heavy. It doesn't matter that she's relatively early on in her career and doesn't know all the things. She learns them. She gets on stage and talks about them. And like, so don't let your being new to the field, you know, necessarily hold you back. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and kind of on that note about uh, topics, um, I, first of all, I really love spiky experience because I think that really nails <laughs> uh, kind of everybody's breath. Like people are laser focused on some things like you know if, if i work with view and nuxt in my current job like i know a lot about that but if eddie is working with angular he knows a heck of a lot more about angular than i do even mm -hmm. though we're both writing javascript so mm -hmm. um there's a lot to be learned from each other and i think that's why user groups and meetups and stuff have been a thing for so long uh even before you know meetup.com came around um but also on the on the same note there uh, how do you feel about, um, topics for, for talks? Is there, cause I think a lot of beginners like myself included, look at these conferences and go like, okay, JS conf, what can I talk about for JavaScript that hasn't been talked about before? Yeah. And it, it becomes really hard to kind of spitball ideas for something like that. Yeah, it is hard. And, um, it's especially intimidating at first when you, you see yourself compared to like, well, I didn't create this framework. Who am I to talk about it? You know, that, that thought yeah, gets yeah. Me into your brain. Uh, and I know it because I still feel it. This is why it took me a while to get to where I was doing this. Um, so here's what I always say to people is tell me the last three projects you worked on at work. And usually by the time they get to project two and maybe three, I will hear something in there that I've never done before. And I say, 
that's interesting to me. And I'm a, a you know audience size of one. But like if I am interested in that and I've never done it, then there's probably hundreds of people just like me who have 10 years or more of experience in software development that have never done it and are interested in it. So it's actually remarkably easy. For example, I was talking to one of my friends who um, uh, here in Chicago and he, he, he was saying, I just don't know what I could talk about. And he's been doing engineering for long enough. And I was like, well, t- what have you been working on? He, he says, well, the last project we did was we internationalized our whole web application. And I was like, dude, I've never done that. And I would be so interested to hear what that was like, like whether the tooling or the, the business case for it or the process you went through, like it sounds complicated and interesting and unique. And it, it's not even that, you know, technically challenging. Maybe it's just like a unique problem that I've never solved before. So um, take those experiences, maybe run them by two or three friends, like you said, who have a different experience than you and see if something sticks out and they're like, oh, that's interesting. I've never heard, you know, I've never done that myself. And even if there are other people speaking about it in the world, they can't be everywhere at once. So um, there's, uh, for example, a couple of years ago, I started speaking about um, Docker and PHP. And this is like a combination of tech. And I'd been using it at work for a while. There were other people who were way more qualified who were speaking about it. But I was like, well, I'll just submit some talks. And uh, they couldn't be at every conference. So every now and then I'd get accepted <laughs> on these talks. And I think that's the way you look at it. It's like, you may not be the, you know, first round draft pick, but there's still people <laughs> who make second and third round draft picks. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, you still get a job. You still get a place up there. That's a good way to think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Kind of like you don't have to be the fastest person on earth to outrun the bear. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of a dark way to look (laughs) at it. It is dark, but (laughs) and and you know, there's there's always just like take trying to put a unique slant on things too, and it kind of comes with time. But I would say another thing to keep in mind when you start submitting is don't worry about getting a lot of rejections. That's kind of normal. So in a way, you have to just go through a lot of no's before you get that first yes. Anyway. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, What about, uh, since you already mentioned it, what about travel reimbursement and like sponsorship and stuff? I know for me and and a lot of other, you know, early career developers, they look at like the conferences that are in their immediate area. It's like, man, if it's right next door, you know, I can probably swing that. What about applying, you know, across the country or, you know, different countries and stuff like that? Um, Is there generally a lot of travel reimbursement? kind of things for speakers or how does that work typically? Yeah, I'll tell you, it's less than 50%, somewhere between 30 and 50% of conferences give real travel and hotel reimbursement. Um, And a lot of those are somewhat limited in that maybe they only do it for up to five speakers or something like that because they they can only afford it. Or maybe they only transport people from within the continent or within the country, depending on where you're at. So it is limited. Um, that's one of the reasons that CFP land, like I started putting the CFP land list together was because I wanted to just keep up with the ones that could reimburse me because my company is small. We couldn't you know, handle the travel costs right now. So uh, you definitely want to sort of, if that's a factor, you, you want to either stay local, like you mentioned, or um, try to look for the ones that have the reimbursement. But just, you know, I'm saying that not there aren't that many, but at the same time, when you submit enough, you will get accepted at some of these. I mean, it's a matter of kind of a numbers game. Every speaker I interviewed said that this is basically a numbers game. And for most of them, it took they get they get about eight to 10 no's for every yes that they get. And still, these are like, you know, people who've been doing this for years. And so 
don't you know take the the few no's you start to get at the beginning as like a sign that you're you're completely off base you might just need a little more time to get there fair enough yeah and then consider also your company make may cover it and that's you may just want to talk to your boss and be like, hey, do we have any kind of education budget or a uh, marketing budget that I could kind of slip under for being at this event? You know, I'll wear a company T-shirt and put you at the beginning of the slides or what have you. I mean, recruiting is you a big stickers. deal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. recruiting is a big deal. You think like these, you know, just kind of because I've been in this hiring role and talked with recruiters, recruiters make fifteen to $20,000 for every candidate they place. Uh, so there's a lot of money wow. thrown around there. Um, yeah. you know, bring that up to your boss and say, Hey, I can bring you maybe a couple job leads if I, for the 500 bucks to travel to this conference and maybe it makes sense. Yeah. I've, I've kind of noticed that. Um, cause I went to a, a big hackathon at university of Florida, uh, called swamp hacks. Um, and our company sponsors it, uh, where we're like the number one sponsor. And so, you know, it was, it was kind of weird for me because I got hired there and nobody said a word about it. And then all of a sudden, like somebody reaches out locally and it's like, Hey, can you do a react talk or something? And I'm like, yeah, cool. For what? And, oh, it's for this hackathon. I go on the website and there's my company logo in like big giant letters. <laughs> and so I talked to the CTO. I'm like, how come nobody said anything about this? And, uh, he's like, Oh, I thought you knew about it. You know, it's a thing we do over here. <laughs> but, um, we ended up buying like, 500 shirts or something crazy like that. And we couldn't like, nobody else wanted to talk at this conference. And there was like, <laughs> for the, the sponsorship level that we got, we got like a, an entire hour. So room for like two half hour talks. And I ended up giving both of the talks because nobody <laughs> wanted to step up. <laughs> but because I, I went in and I was like, Hey, you know, I, I talked to the organizers, what would be good topics to do? And, you know, we discussed that back and forth worked with them on it and then ended up giving them, I ended up hearing from my CTO later, like, Hey, people like recognize who we are. Uh, they were, you know, appreciative of the talks that you gave and mentioned you and stuff like that. So I, I really got to see it work on the ground. And I, I think I, I do believe it. Like if you go out and you give, you know, a, a decent presentation, that is really good brand recognition. And that will kind of get people to recognize who you are and, and what your company does. Yeah, it's a great com- conversation starter as well. And uh, this is the, the probably one of the top things that the people I interviewed also said was they more than the going to conferences and learning and the all that, the biggest thing they take away from speaking is getting to meet other people, whether that's other speakers or attendees. And those relationships are just so much more valuable in the long term than any even just the personal branding bit, it, which is nice, but it's like so hard to measure that. But like the people you meet at a conference who maybe hire you someday, or you hire them someday, or you just get an introduction for, to somebody someday, or you're going and visiting another city and you remember and you go sit, get lunch with them. Like that's the kind of stuff that it's just really hard to replace that with online only interactions. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So um, we've talked a whole lot about CFPs and, and going to conferences and stuff. Um, you said that you've interviewed a lot of speakers. Let's dig into that uh, those findings a little bit. Um, so first of all, like we know we're going to sign up for CFP land and jump on Twitter <laughs> and, and follow that, uh, that account and get the newsletter and all that stuff. But um, past that, like what conferences should we be looking for and what topics should we be looking for like in those conferences? Yeah. So there's a few considerations you can kind of put into your, 
your list of things uh, when you're thinking about which conferences to apply for. In the beginning, you might not be so picky. You might just throw your, you, you might pick two or three talk ideas and just throw them out to a bunch of conferences. But ultimately, you're going to want to start to whittle that list down to maybe certain topic areas they focus on, and you're going to want to make sure your talk ideas match up with that. So for example, don't give a talk about Ruby on Rails at a Python conference. It's just not going to work, right? Um, but there's also more subtle things than that. Uh, a lot of times, the conferences will list on their CFP page, like these are the areas we're trying to focus on this year. And maybe you look at that and see if any of your talk ideas match up with that. You also want to think about location for some of the reasons we just talked about, like how easy is it to get there and how much will it cost me? And like, uh, you know, if it's on the other side of the world, are they going to cover travel or are you okay paying $2,000 to fly to you know Thailand? And maybe you want to roll it into a trip. So maybe it's not a big deal, but it probably is something you want to think about. Eventually, as you get further along in your speaking career and you've done this for a couple of years, you might want to start thinking about the conference's reputation. And what I mean by that is, honestly, this is something I didn't discover until I started speaking, but not every conference that gets planned actually gets done. And what I mean mm -hmm. is that, you know, a conference might start the planning process. They might start to pick speakers. They might even get a venue lined up, but then maybe uh, the bottom falls out on some of their sponsors and the mm -hmm. organizer has to just pull the plug. And that is, it's painful, but it happens. And when it does, you so, might, yeah. I have to ask, <clears throat> since you brought that up, have you read about uh, Node Atlanta and yeah, NG Atlanta? Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, as well. <laughs> yeah that, I was yeah. going to say, there's a, there's a case in point right there. And I don't know any of the specifics <laughs> other than what the blog posts say. So I, okay. I don't want to feed the rumor mill, but um, I, the, I'll just say that those kind of things happen somewhat frequently. Um, in the speaker community, you start to get into following some of these people on Twitter and you start to hear about this stuff at least a couple times a year where a conference shuts down because of either lack of funding or maybe some kind of big uh, code of conduct snafu by an organizer. I mean, there's a lot of things that happen that are sometimes kind of weird and sketchy and then sometimes it's just like unlucky. And so anyway, a point being... As a speaker, you may want to think about the or the organization's reputation and how likely it is that the event will really happen and how they're going to treat speakers. I, there's also kind of other things that, um, you know, you may want to look into the, the actual event's code of conduct and see if they, they care about um, uh, make sure it's a, like, safe place for everybody. And I think that's really important. But it's also one of those things that when you're first starting, you may not even think to look for. So keep an eye on that kind of stuff. Um, it, again, as you get plugged into the speaking community over time, you can start to ask some of the speakers you've seen more often, maybe what they think of certain events. And that's, that's something that I see come up pretty frequently as well. Cool. Cool. So, uh, you look through a, a big list of conferences and you're like, okay, I think I've got a few picked out. Um, and then you look at the themes and you're like, well, I think I have a couple ideas. Uh, if you're actually going to sit down and write, you know, a proposal, um, first of all, like, how do you pick a good title? Because that's really <laughs> difficult. It uh, is. I, I've kind of seen like my titles tend to grow as I, you know, think of an idea. But then if I look online at um, like videos of conference talks, they're really short. <laughs> so <they're, laughs> there's kind of that contrast there. But then on top of that, you've got to write like a, a solid abstract as well. So like a yeah. paragraph yeah. of explanation of what you're going to talk about. So uh, do you have any keys for success in, in doing that? Well, 
I, this is honestly one of those things that I feel like I'm still working on. It's funny that um, there's two unique skills you have to have if you're going to speak at conferences. One is the skill of speaking publicly, which I feel like I've always been okay at. The other one is writing abstracts and submitting talks. And I feel like I'm still figuring that side out, which, you know, that was one of the things I did ask a lot in the interviews was kind of like what, you know, what kind of tips they had for getting their abstracts submitted or accepted. Um couple things came up a lot. One was making sure that each submission you make is somewhat tailored to the conference at hand. So it's easy to just like have a big text file of all your abstracts and then copy paste the same, you know, title and description in to every single conference. But you probably want to at least tweak some key things every time and re read through that CFP description, understand if what you're submitting actually makes sense. Um, I personally lean towards the advice of don't be too wordy and don't kind of just make it run on and on and on, but try to make it kind of enticing and like interesting and enough to grab your attention and explain what it is, but not be overly verbose and just kind of walk through your whole talk. Usually they don't want a complete outline. They just want a couple hundred words. Um, also get a proofreader and there's a, oh, I'm going to, of course, I'm going to blank on the name of it. Um, but we'll, we'll have to look it up, um, look it up and I'll send it to you guys. But there's a, a, a website for um, submitting your, you can send your abstract to some more senior conference speakers and get their feedback on it. Um, and oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And I wish I could think of the name of it because I, like <laughs> I feel like this is one of those things I should know because I'm into public speaking. But anyway, we'll, we'll figure it out later. So there are things like that. Or you can at least just go find someone locally in your community, maybe somebody who speaks at meetups and kind of ask them if they wouldn't mind reviewing it or something like that. Um, so that kind of stuff can help. Uh, I personally, uh, again, like this is some of these things are kind of opinionated, but I, I think I try to avoid like cliched kind of things and getting really like, um, I don't know, trying to be too clever. It's like, I, I think we all see enough of that. And it's like, let's just get to the I, i'm a little more no nonsense like i want to get to the <laughs> point uh, maybe it's because i'm just not a funny person which is totally fine um, <laughs> and then there's big things like that are uh, you see this every every conference organizer tells me they see this is um somebody puts out something they think is kind of funny and edgy but it's really just like it totally alienating to a group of people for whatever reason. So maybe they, uh, you know, say a word that's definitely not a word you should be saying in public, or they um, make kind of a light of a situation that is not to be made light of. And that kind of thing is really, it's getting, again, with the whole like code of conducts are important in, in conferences, they are also paying a lot of attention to that kind of thing. And so be really careful about that. Run your ideas by uh, some people who are different from yourself and get get some, you know, alternate opinions on whether what you're saying is like appropriate or not for that kind of thing. But again, I lean towards the more matter of fact and professional side of things than maybe some other speakers. Okay. That's a, yeah, I wouldn't think that there would be, especially with like technology, that many like off color talk proposals getting shot down or, or even submitted in the first place. That's, that's kind of a <laughs> yeah. weird thing. I wouldn't have even thought that. I, you know, I would have thought that too, but it's one of those things that, um, like every, every conference organizer I've talked to has said, we get at least a couple of these every year that I'm like, why? It's like, so wow. it happens. <laughs> so as much as I hate to have to say it, I feel like it's worth saying because maybe some people just don't have the awareness that like, yeah, you know, this, we are trying to sort of build a more inclusive world in tech and, uh, you know, some people just aren't quite there yet. Hmm. Do you feel like, uh, you need to write like a really like for lack of a better word, like clickbaity or really spicy title for your talk? Or do you think like short and sweet or to the point is, is better? 
Yeah, I'm personal. Yeah, again, this is a personal preference thing. I think if you are really, maybe you came from a background in stand-up comedy, so you're super clever and you know how to ride that line really well, go for it. But I am not that guy. So um, <laughs> <laughs> know your strength. Know, know your strengths. You know, and if if you think that, I just would say that most people think they're funnier than they really are, and so it's probably a good idea to just be a little more on the matter of fact side. Tell us what you're going to teach us, and let's talk about that. Any uh, any okay. tips for actually the content of the talk? Like uh, assuming you get accepted, yeah. Uh, I know there there's some people that they write the abstract and don't write the talk, and they write the talk after they get accepted. So that, like, yeah, that's super common. And that was another thing that came up in all these speaker interviews was like most people they basically especially the first time they're getting a talk accepted they have not actually made the presentation yet. They just have a loose idea of what it's going to be. So that's actually the norm in um, even with experienced speakers. So a couple things for giving okay. that presentation. Um, one is practice a lot. That's just number one advice from everybody is practice it more than you think you need to, to where you know the subject so well that you know, you're not going to be thrown off by weird questions or um, kind of like a strange change of environment, like maybe all of a sudden you're uh, not in a stage, you're in a little side room that you didn't expect and there's coats in front of you and it's like all these weird variables can happen when you're speaking. So know the content so well that it wouldn't matter if those variables change and screw you up. Um, I like to practice at least 10 or 20 times like the full conference talk in um, my room in front of a mirror or somewhere like that or in front of a real audience ideally. Um, one thing that a lot of speakers mention that I also do is I try to give my talks at least a couple times at local meetups or boot camps. So this is something that I think people don't realize but most uh, code boot camps are looking for guest speakers to come in and talk to their students to kind of tell them what it's like in the industry. And if you're just out of um, school or a code boot camp, this could be a great time to get out there and kind of connect, reconnect with students who are not very far behind you. Um, a, I think it's really fun because you get to kind of meet these people who are new to the, the community and new to tech. And then B, it's also a good way to practice. So I've done that a lot with all my conference talks. Um, so practice, big one. And then the other one that as you get a little more experienced, I always try to push people towards is like tell a story rather than just stating facts and reading bullet points off a slide. And this is this is harder advice to follow because it is uh, not the way that we've been sort of shown how to make PowerPoint presentations where it's like bullet, 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 little image on the side, bullet, 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 little image on the side. Um, instead, you're trying to use the sort of the slides as like a guiding image for your story that you're just telling very, it sounds very organic. And there's some really great speakers who do this. Uh, Nicholas Means is one that always comes up with uh, people I interview. They always say he's a great speaker for this kind of storytelling. Um, I really like Sandy Metz as well. She's a great, like, feels very organic as a speaker, but she's telling you a lot of deeply technical information, which is really cool. So watch good speakers too, and try to get some, pick up on some of the, the things they do. Cool. Cool. Yeah, I've seen some... Uh some talks that have been a little like for instance uh eve uh, porcello porcello i don't know if i'm saying that right uh she gave a graphql talk and part of her talk was she had video from like the speaker's dinner the night before and she's like showing off how much she had to drink and then she ends up getting <laughs> wasted and getting like a graphql what? tattoo or something so there's some stuff that's like really <laughs> out there that, that's uh, pretty that out seen. there yeah, that I've that I've seen as far as talks go, and to me, I'm, I'm I don't know. It's it's hard to nail that 
that storytelling aspect of it without going like maybe if you're a big name in the community you can pull that kind of stuff off but uh i don't know i wouldn't i guess i wouldn't get too adventurous with that kind of thing yeah i agree i think it's like start small with what you know and things that you're comfortable with and then slowly try to get better and better it's like the first goal is get on stage and then present something without you know falling over completely forgetting what you're going to yeah. do. And then, then once you've done that and you start to get comfortable there, then figure out what that next level is. Okay. So don't, don't jump straight to level three. You don't have to. Yeah, definitely. Uh, any other tips for, uh, for anybody that's, you know, getting their start, maybe junior developers and specifically uh, for what they should do as far as like conferences or CFPs or anything like that? Um, yeah. So a couple things that are just kind of more logistical, but also important. Um, you get like a first and last slide to kind of present, you know, up there. So usually your first slide shows up for a few minutes before you actually start speaking. It's like while you're getting set up, you'll plug in and you'll have your first slide up there. So put your contact information or Twitter handle or whatever you want to share publicly, or maybe even links to the slides in that first, um, that opening slide so that it sits up there for a bit. People can kind of go get your slides and follow along or whatever. And then the last slide might also stay up there for a bit as you answer questions. Uh, this is another thing that just kind of leads into another point that comes up is do you want to answer questions live in front of the audience or do you want to tell people, hey, come meet me in the, the hallway afterwards and we'll, we can talk more? Um, because this is kind of an issue that divides speakers and there's no right or wrong answer. It's kind of your preference. But for some speakers, the, the sort of like being forced to answer questions live on stage, it can be scary and kind of like it can it can throw you off and terrifying very, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's scary and also it can be a weird platform for people in the audience to kind of give their own mini talk that isn't really what everyone's there to do so we've all probably yeah. been in the audience yeah, when i fall a victim yeah. to that one <laughs> yeah so we've all been in the audience when we hear some somebody raises their hand afterwards and decides to just tell you a story and you're like was there a question there or did i just miss it it's like no there's no question uh so that kind of thing happens pretty sadly pretty frequently because I think some people are just out of touch. But um, anyway, you, the way you combat that is pretty easy is you just say, hey, I'm not going to take questions up here, but I'd love to talk afterwards. Just go meet me in the hallway. And that's usually the, a nice like middle ground. So you don't have to take questions live um, and that can take a lot of the pressure off. Um, once you um, kind of get a little bit comfortable. One thing I, I like to tell new speakers is try to memorize your opening and closing lines, but nothing else in the middle. Everything else should be like kind of bullet points in your head, but not like you know every line. Uh, you don't want to sound like you're reading off a cue card. But why I say that first and last line is really helpful is that the the moment you get on stage, those lights, you know, they may have spotlights, uh, they hit you and um, you sort of look out in the crowd and there's like no one you know out there and you think to yourself, okay, what have I done? Um, I don't know if I <laughs> may have to, if you have to beep that out, that's fine, but whatever. Oh crap. What have I done? And, uh, <laughs> you, you just sort of go blank, which happens to almost everyone the first time they speak. Um, then you want to have that opening line memorized or written down or whatever you have to do. And usually once you have the, um, I guess I'd call it like the initial momentum going, it gets a lot better. It's like, oh, okay, I'm in a groove now and it's moving. So that first line can help. Same with the last line. It's like a good way to make sure you're closing strong um, and you have a good call to action or whatever you want to say. So that's another one that, that comes up often. Um, another thing to do is to 
try to think about what kind of mindset you need to be in to be um, ready to speak. So I always like to ask speakers if they have a pre-talk ritual because some people are very, you know, it's almost like the pre-game ritual that baseball players have or, or football players have. There are speakers who have that same idea where they they may, one guy, Alex Lakatos, he uh, tells a story about how he always goes into the bathroom beforehand and just starts beating on his chest and screaming and yelling and raising his fists, just gets himself pumped up because he's just like, I just act like I won something. It doesn't really matter what. He but just does the up. Wolf of Wall Street, Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Right. Hopefully, oh. less, probably less cocaine, but the same idea. And, <laughs> okay. Uh, so, you know, just something that gets him pumped up. Other people, on the other hand, like to sit in their hotel room and just kind of chill before because it's very nerve wracking and like they need some alone time, maybe some lights out time. And so figure out what works for you. Um, for me, I like to have a couple conversations with people leading up to it because it gets me into like talking mode. I kind of found I have like two modes, introvert introvert mode who writes code and is quiet and thinks about things. And then extrovert mode who kind of can get out there and actually get on stage and talk to people and do the podcasts and stuff like that. So bef- leading up to extrovert mode, I have to like warm myself up a, a bit because otherwise I'm just sitting over here in like code mode and I don't want to talk to anybody. Leave me, you know, leave me alone. <laughs> and so, so for me, that's, that's what helps. But find something that works for you. Cool, cool. Um, real quick, do you think that uh, having like your own personal brand already going before you apply to a conference plays a, a, a role in selection? Like if you're a more well-known person in the community, do you have a higher shot at getting a conference talk? Yeah, for sure. I mean, conferences, you have to think about um, – yeah, you know, one of the things that came up is I've interviewed all these speakers. I also have talked to a lot of conference organizers. And at the end of the day, most conference organizers, it's a very, it's a tough business. They don't make much money from it, if they make any at all. Um, usually they put a lot of their own personal money at risk to put down deposits on things. And so they do want speakers who can draw an audience in. And let's just be honest, a speaker who has a little more name recognition, is known in the community and attracts certain people they will sell more tickets. And at the end of the day, that's going to help the conference. So it doesn't mean new speakers can't get selected. It just means that you are facing a little bit of an uphill battle if you don't have much of a personal brand ahead of time. So um, you can definitely start doing that without being a speaker. You can start writing blog posts. That's a great way to do it. You can um, write guest posts for other blogs. That's also helpful for just getting your name in front of different people. Um, And you can start your own website. You can um, start uh, you know, doing these live uh, streams on Twitch. I know that's something that a lot of people get into, and that's really a, a cool way to show off what you're working on and what you're learning. Um, so there's lots of ways you can do that outside of conference speakings. Um, you can also just do it in the local meetup committee. A lot of times what conferences will ask um, in the application process, they'll, they may ask, have you given this talk or some other talk before, and do you have a video link of you giving it? And they're doing that to kind of de-risk themselves. Because again, if you think about from the organizer's perspective, they don't want to get like a bunch of speakers who then back out last minute because they're nervous or get on stage and just totally blank. I mean, it looks bad for them. It looks bad for the speaker. It's like not a good experience. And so the more you've done speaking before in small settings, the more they trust you with the bigger setting. So those kind of things can help. And so one thing I've gotten into doing when I go to a meetup is I try to ask them, hey, do you mind if I set up my you know, phone in the back or have some, you know, to someone to record it. Is that okay? And usually they're fine with it if they don't already have their own recording going on. Cool. Uh, Eddie, do you have yeah. any, any thoughts? Um, 
Yeah, I, you probably answered this already, but maybe some of the people you've talked to have some advice for stage fright, things like that. Yeah, stage fright is super common. Um, and even people I know who have spoken at dozens um, or, or hundreds of conferences still feel it from time to time, if not every time they get on stage. Um, there's different coping mechanisms. I think that whole like prepping yourself, whether that means putting your headphones on and, and listening to music or talking to someone or whatever it is, that can help with it a bit. The practice bit helps a ton with it. Um, most people say that you know when they've practiced something enough and it feels okay, uh, that can really help eliminate or minimize the stage fright. Another piece of advice I actually just got this last week that I really liked was find somebody in the audience who is happy and smiling, maybe somebody you know who's like going to pay attention to you and be a friendly face and just key in on them and look around the other audience and then come back to them every every few minutes because they're like your, they're your happy place. And <laughs> I didn't even think about that, but that makes so much sense because sometimes you'll, you'll look at somebody and they are like off in another world or they are, they're like looking mean and you're like, oh God, is this me? Like, what did I do? And it's probably not you. It's probably something totally unrelated, but like you, you start to like have this weird inner dialogue and I, I do. Uh, and so anyway, I, I'm going to try this now. It's like when I am up there, I'm going to key on, on the one or two happy people and just try to bounce between them. And, you know, if you're in the audience, be that happy, smiling person for every speaker, they're going to love you. <laughs> All right, cool. 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 Um, yeah, I have one more. Oh, go ahead. Go for it. Oh, um, yeah. just about, uh, doing demos do Cause, um, I was watching a talk and it was about speaking at like meetups and stuff like that. And, uh, the person speaking mentioned, um, maybe have videos of the stuff you want to demo. Cause a lot of times someone will be typing or like coding and then things blow up or just don't work or whatever. <laughs> so is that something you recommend? Yeah. So Every speaker I've talked to has an experience of either their demo not working or someone mm -hmm. else's demo not working that they got to watch and see them crash and burn at. And it's not fun for anybody. Yeah. I mean, you feel in the audience, you feel bad because you're like, oh, this is I know how bad this would be if I were in your shoes. And as a speaker, you feel really bad because you came to deliver these people some content. And now you can't give it because one, you know, maybe technical problems or the hotel Wi-Fi went down or something weird, you know, and like all this stuff can happen. So. You're exactly right on, Eddie. It's have a backup plan. Whether that means you screen record some GIFs or GIFs, depending on your pronunciation. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, yeah, I know, right? I'm going to try to try the line here and not get into opinions. Uh, so you screen record some things or you um, record a video and embed it in your, your presentation or have it locally on your computer so you can just pull it up as a backup plan. Those are both good ideas. Or you... Um, uh, can share the code and instead just show screenshots of the key points in it. So like if you have your code on GitHub anyway, you could say here, you can, you know, go look at the whole code base, but I'll just sort of pinpoint some key areas. That's what I tend to do when I want to like demo some code is just like take snapshots of those certain important parts because I think partly because I'm, I'm just a little too nervous to, to do the whole live code thing. It's just not, I'm not quite there yet, yeah. but, um, if you, you know, as you do it more and more, I think it can be really effective. So I'll sort of, uh, the the side is when you're starting out, probably don't do it, probably have a backup plan if you do do it. If you get really good at it, it can be a super powerful uh, way to show how easy a tool is to use or how effective you can, you can write, you know, some rewrite some code or something like that. And so 
if you do go that way and you start to do more of these, uh, what I would recommend is you go check with the AV people uh, at the conference or at the hotel ahead of time. You say, can I just test this out? I want to have it plugged into the exact same connectors I'm going to use tomorrow or, or that you know later this day and just test it out, like doubly sure that it's going to work. All right, cool. Awesome. So uh, at the end of the show, we, we usually talk uh, about Nerd Minute, but before we jump into that, uh, where can we find you on the internet and where can we get to CFP land? Yeah. So cfpland.com is, uh, out there for the newsletter. There's also at CFP underscore land for Twitter. So, uh, most, I think almost all the conferences that we put in the newsletter are also on Twitter. Sometimes I have to, if a couple don't make it, but generally they're all there. So, um, you can also just follow on Twitter if you prefer that method. There's also an RSS feed or like a JSON API. If you just want to like go build your own thing on it, some guy built like a telegram app with the data stream, which is kind of cool. Like <laughs> I don't use telegram, but he did. So, um, and tell me about it if you do, cause I love to hear that, that stuff. And then I'm personally, um, at Carl L Hughes on Twitter, which is Carl with a K. So, you can just do CFP land. That's easier. Um, yeah. So, uh, but I, I tweet about all sorts of engineering and uh, entrepreneurship stuff. Awesome. Cool. And we will link to all that stuff on the show notes for this episode. Uh, but yeah, Carl, like I said, at the end of the show, we do a little segment called Nerd Minute. And uh, we just talk about books or movies or games or whatever we're into lately. So as the guest, uh, is there anything that you've been uh, nerding out on? Yeah, I hate to admit this. So, um, oh, the nerdier the better. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. A, I'll just preface this with: I'm not a video game person. At least not for the last ten years. I've been like, I have. I've, I feel like I've grown up, and this. I don't get to do the same more. So, anyway, though, a few months ago, I found this thing called Pokemon Showdown. Have you guys seen this by chance? No, I've heard of it. Now. All right, yeah, it's way too obscure and nerdy. So, it's a Pokemon battle simulator. So. Obviously, you probably don't follow the world of Pokemon. There's now 900 or 1,000 Pokemon. So there's thousands of them. And there's like, if I wanted to buy, like, get access to them, I'd have to buy like 100 games and 30 systems. But the battle simulator lets you just go set up a team and just go start battling people online. And it's all like, it's it's run by these people. It's open source. It's run by this random crew of people all over the world. And it's totally free. And it's totally like, like, trademark infringement so i don't know why it hasn't got shut down <laughs> but it's it's also like super cool so i've gotten into playing that and then i also got into i just taking it a step nerdier i like worked with some other guy to help build a chrome extension that enhances your in battle like uh heads up display that shows you like how much uh i don't know how much health is left and all this stuff and uh so anyway it's my nerdy thing of the last few months and i try not to do it too much because it's a huge waste of time is this like an that's online cool. browser-based battling yeah. thing? or Yeah, that's exactly it. It's like you skip all the part of playing the game of Pokemon and you just play the battles with real people online. That's it. What's it look like? Is it 3D yeah, or it 2D? Or? Um, I mean, they, they get sprites. So it, okay. again, it's like all community done. So eventually they'll get community members who contribute their own sprites. And it's not 3D. It's all like... 2d so it's like i see okay. the back of mine and the front of theirs you, you guys okay. probably played the yeah, like yeah, original like pokemon right blue so kind of it's thing. like that style of okay. bad like medium bad graphics and uh <laughs> it i don't know it's just like the the interesting thing about it which is again the nerdy side of this is that the battle mechanics have gotten incredibly complicated now like there's all these there's not only the statuses the lowering and raising attack and all this there's also all these special moves that do things like flip everyone's uh, speed stats for five turns that 
um, add weather to the mix that add like these, they have, have had mega evolutions and yeah. they've had like, so anyway, it's just gotten like so much more complex that it's like, it's like playing this really challenging puzzle game. And, and that's why I nerd out about it. <laughs> yeah. I know there's a lot more types now as well. There's yes. like steel and, uh, a ghost and psychic have been in it, but there, there's like hybrid types it, and, and weird like stuff a, like that. Yeah. There's like a fairy and a steel and then there's some dragon. Yeah. Some that have they like abilities have that types change now. their types. Yeah, it's so yeah, it's, it's all over, man. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> this is uh, this is awesome, and Eddie and I will probably will naturally we'll send you a, a battle request too. But <laughs> right. We're probably gonna fight after this uh, this room. Um, <laughs> so definitely shoot us the link for that because I, I want to check that out. Oh yeah, yeah those are sure. cool. Ho- hopefully, like our podcast is small enough that we won't draw cease and desist letters from Nintendo. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But, uh, Eddie, what are you into lately? Uh, no, I was just gonna say, like Nintendo's pretty good about like shutting things down. So yeah, they're yeah. they suck when that, <laughs> when that stuff. Yeah. Um, I've been playing an older video game, not as old as Pokemon. Uh, it was uh, I was playing an old Call of Duty, like uh, Advanced Warfare. So, oh yeah, how's that? Yeah, uh, it was fine. I finished it. Um, I had like started it like when it came out and then, uh, I was looking through my bookshelf and it was there <laughs> and, uh, I was just, I would play it like a half an hour, do like one mission every other day or so, whatever, when the kids are like going to bed. Um, and I just eventually finished it. It was, <laughs> it just kind of ended too. It wasn't like, um, <laughs> was this, the, I, uh, this is the, the one with Kevin Spacey one? in it. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. I always feel like really finishing weird. those games is so anticlimactic. Like you're like, oh, all this work, I'm finally done in this like a, a two minute credit and or cutscene at the end and then credits and you're like, that's it, that's what I yeah, got. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't yeah. It was fun to play, whatever. So I stopped that that ended and then I started Black Ops three uh just to play it. Because it was free a long time ago on PlayStation Four. Um but yeah, it's nice. it's an easy thing to play and then pick up later if you haven't played it in months because you're just picking up a gun and shooting things um because i wanted to go back to god of war but it's been almost a year and i have to relearn all the mechanics again uh so that would be a pain in the butt Uh, yeah do you ever find yourself uh you're like man i want to play this game but i don't want to sit down and learn this game yeah you you gotta go through a two-hour tutorial again yeah and like I don't remember what I, I equipped him with and all this other stuff. I feel like, like that with like every time I go back to the Metal Gear Solid games, which are so yes. intricate. Yeah. Like there you go. I, at one point I was like, okay at, at one of them. And now I, it's like, I don't have time to devote to this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the time I got to the third one, I was like, there's this intricate CQC system to it where you snake can do all this judo and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, I never learned how to do anything. I, I learned the one move where he like grabs the guy by the head and smashes his face into the ground. And that was the only move I could do with it. <laughs> so I feel like it's only gotten worse from there. Like four or five, six or like now snake is like riding horses and he's a cowboy and I don't yeah. know what's going on. So <laughs> I haven't even jumped into that one yet. Yeah. <laughs> now you can make the horse poop or something like that. <laughs> yeah. You gotta, you gotta do button commands for that. So. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks Konami. Uh, uh, for me, I watched um, Shin Godzilla. Have you heard of that? Is that an animated? 
thing? No, it's a it's a live action Godzilla movie. Um, is that the one with the oh, eleven shit. in it? What's that? Is that the one with the eleven in it? The uh, no, this one's uh, made in Japan. Oh, okay. All in yeah, Japanese. It just came out like last year or two years ago, right? Yeah, recently. Um, yeah, not I did. The, uh, I saw that. Did you watch it? Yeah. Uh, it was amazing. I used to love those old seventies Godzillas from, you yes. know, when I was Oh, kid. it's that style. Yeah, so it's that style. Oh, yeah. that's cool. It's, it's, it's like, a big send up of like the first Godzilla movie. Yeah. It's oh, a throwback okay. to that. It's like way over the top and awesome. I mean, yeah. It's, uh, also I'm a big, um, anime fan and I love Evangelion and the director of that was the director for this movie. So, um, you could like, if you're a fan of that show, and you watch Shin Godzilla, you can definitely like pick all of those similarities up where um, like the music is the same, like the cutting between the preparation to fight the monster and, and like all of the uh, logistics and stuff that go into it. Um, all that stuff is like so heavily like grafted from Evangelion that uh, watching it just like gave me chills, especially like the, the military uh, shooting missiles at the monster and stuff like that. And the coordination between that, there was a lot of that stuff in Evangelion and they pick like the perfect person for the job to do that, that directing. Um, and that they just like nailed all of it. It was insane. That's cool. Yeah. It's uh, I actually found a, a link for, um, it's, I don't know if you can watch it like on DVD or whatever over here uh, in America, but I found a link to watch it <coughs> subbed online. So I'll, uh, I'll shoot that over to you, Eddie. Okay. <laughs> if, if you're interested. Yeah. Oh, well, was, if you want to watch it again. No, I, I would definitely watch it again. It was like playing at one of, we have like a weird um, movie theater that plays, you know, like movies that don't get normal releases. And it, a it weird, was, amazing movie theater. Yeah. Right? It's amazing. Right. I love it because, because <laughs> they play stuff like that. They played Shin Godzilla. And I was like, of course, nobody goes with me. So I have to go alone to that. <laughs> Even Honey, my, do you want to go see the Godzilla movie? No, not, Carl. No, no I don't. <laughs> I'm in the same boat, so I feel you there. <laughs> what about, uh, did you see Parasite? That, that not, was a big... Uh, no. Not yet. I just, like, we had a baby five months ago, and so I have, I have not, I'm not, I just don't have, I haven't watched movies. It's, like, really hard to, to sneak in that, that time to do it. Yeah, you're, you gotta catch yeah. everything on home video, right? Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. like, I definitely can't go to theaters. Like, now it's like, I can watch, like, half a movie a night on netflix before we <laughs> yeah. go to bed and then it's so we get through like half half night or half a movie a night at most <laughs> what's that uh netflix one the the irishman that's like a week long oh yeah yeah if you, if you got kids like that, took, man, that took us about three days yeah yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's awesome i'm uh i'm waiting to to see parasite I, I, i'm trying to work it into uh like a weekend or something but yeah um is My family is not big into to subtitles, so oh, okay. Yeah, it's you it's know. like with subtitles, you can't just put it on and then be doing something else. You got to watch it. Yeah, that, that, yeah, you got to engaged. Yeah, it's like kind of good, but also it means that you got to really carve out time. You can't just do this while you're folding laundry. It's like you got to really pay attention. So yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Cool. Well, that's all I've got for uh, for nerd minutes. So, um, Carl, thank you so so much for coming on the yeah, show. It was you. a blast having you. Oh, my pleasure, Lee, Eddie. Good to meet you guys in uh, you know video person. And hopefully we'll we'll keep keep in touch on Twitter and all that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's the uh, what's the next conference that you're applying to? 
or uh, that you recently applied to? So I've been trying to stick around the Midwest just for the like doing a little less travel this year. And next one I'm doing is called Developer First. It is a sort of leadership tech leadership focus conference in Minneapolis um, in June. Really excited about that. Going to bring the family up to which. Um, yeah, I, we didn't talk about this, but that's one of those things that's kind of fun too. Is you you get, a lot of conferences will let you bring your family along and if they're covering travel you know they, they cover them or part of their tickets too so oh, that's, um, cool. that's something yeah that i'm going to be trying to take more advantage of too fantastic are you already accepted or are you applied yeah or? that one that one i'm accepted I, i've got a couple of that i've applied for in the area too but um yeah it's, it, usually like this time of year is really good to apply for all the summer ones and usually you'll start hearing back like middle of march ish so i'll probably start hearing in the next couple of weeks uh, about some of those but who knows it again my numbers are always like 10 to 20 percent acceptance so it's not i'll probably just try to do two or three a year yeah. <laughs> all right cool well uh hopefully people will come out and see you at that conference <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah all right all right yeah Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Tech Junior. Head on over, head on over to our site at techjar.dev for show notes of past episodes. While you're there, sign up for a newsletter to get an email from us once a week with the latest episodes and some other stuff. Uh, if you'd like to support us, check out our Patreon and our Teespring store and pick up like a sticker or something. And uh, yeah, special thanks to our current patrons. Uh, you guys rule. Um, assuming things go well uh, with this whole coronavirus thing, uh, Eddie and I are going to be at Orlando Code Camp on March 18th, uh, which is a Saturday, no, 28th, <laughs> March 28th, which is a Saturday. Uh, so come check that out. Uh, Eddie's going to be talk, giving a talk about A-Frame, and he and I are going to be giving a talk about how to get hired in the tech industry. So uh, come on out and check that out uh, alright yeah that's that's all I've got for this week uh, next week we are doing an episode on conferences so big conferences small conferences uh, red conferences blue conferences so uh, that was a pretty fun one um, I just got back from ViewConf in Austin Texas which was a huge conference and Eddie and I have been to some local small ones so we're going to compare and contrast the two for you alright that's all I've got See you guys next Wednesday.